You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as the light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. Count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. I set him up. I didn't tell him about that part. <laughs> My bad. Thank you, Montel. Good morning, folks. How are we doing today? Excited to continue meeting with the Lord as we have already this morning. So, April 4th, 1968, uh, there's this little roadside motel, Lorraine Motel, that ends up becoming a museum. And it becomes a museum because on that day, that evening, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is walking out onto a porch and a shot rings out and he's assassinated. And everything changes for this city of Memphis, for the United States, really for the world. And um, he's in Memphis, Dr. King, because a couple months prior, Uh, there had started a protest and a strike by the sanitation workers of Memphis. And that started because these men uh, were uh, 
finding inhumane treatment. Two men had been killed uh, out on their duties in the truck because their equipment was outdated and ancient. They were getting paid peanuts, and they were really being used to do one of the most necessary and essential services to a community. And so this began a protest, but not just in a reaction to those direct consequences, not just because they were underpaid and not just because the equipment wasn't good enough. No, uh, they were protesting something bigger. See, uh, William Lucy, who was one of the union labor leaders at that time, when he started the strike, he got with his pastor and he wanted to find a phrase that symbolized what they were protesting. Because what they were protesting was not just what they saw, what was happening to them, this experience, but what they were protesting was that their experiences were undermining a basic belief that they held. And so, in defiance of what they were seeing in the world, they decided to come up with a phrase that pushed back and that catalyzed this basic belief. And so, they wrote signs that say, I am a man. You would think that's something that doesn't need to be asserted. And yet, in the history of our country, that time and again has to have been something that has had to be asserted, that has to be uh, yelled by people. I am a man, I am a person, my life matters. Because though we live in a country that has the basic beliefs that all men are created equal, with inalienable rights. We have not always lived that out. We have not always lived up to that bill of promise. And so people have had to push against that. If you are a minority, then you may understand that, but we're not a monolith. Not everyone has had that experience. But I can speak for myself uh, that there is this this thing that I can't really explain to you effectively through words, what it's like to live in a place where I am outwardly free, um, but inwardly feel this cloud, this cloud of lack. Like, to have brown skin, yes, um, have black skin, but to be black seems like two different things. And we can think like, it's kind of weird, I can be tempted to think that God made me black, but actually the whole concept, white and black and the way that we use these words, these are not words of antiquity. These aren't concepts of antiquity. This is not what the Greeks saw themselves at. No one in ancient Egypt considered themselves white or black. Actually, these terms and the way we use them have only been around for 500 years. They are relatively new in the history of the world. And so there's been this, this conflicted belief. There's been, at times, uh, these questions that rise that say, why, because I'm a minority, like, why am I less than? Like, who am I? My creator made me black and called me blessed. Man named me black and made it a sign of my supposed regression. And so there's this incongruence in the world of me seeing myself as a person deserving of full dignity and then in the world in certain spaces, and I have too many stories to name here on this stage, but uh, my experience is not lined up to that belief. 
And it's in that conflicted belief rises pain and trauma and questions. Now, it doesn't matter if you don't understand the, the minority race experience or whether you're a minority or not for what we're talking about today, because maybe you've been a minority in the germane sense of the word. Maybe you've found yourself at times in a place, in a space um, where you weren't a part of the status quo and you felt and perceived and realized some real oppression or uh, subjugation around that. And maybe things that you've done or things that have been done to you, things that you've observed, you realize that the world isn't right. And you don't know what to do, and so these questions start. And in these questions, there's, there's a call to start ripping up. There's this call to push back against what's broken. So what do you do when you begin to question everything? That's what we're talking about in this series we started last week, Deconstructing Renovation. We are taking a journey through the Psalms to understand this process of renovation whereby which God guides us through the incongruence of our beliefs and the reality of our world. He guides us through the questions that arise when our souls and our personhoods come into conflict. So whatever that thing has been, whether it's your family of origin and the things that have arisen from that, the things that you have experienced, again, the things that have been done to you or that you yourself has committed and they've made you realize that the world isn't what you thought it has been, well, we want to figure out what do we do in that space? Does the Lord have anything to say about that? And see, when you're in that place where you start to question everything, it's very important that we do something. And this is why, because as we talked about last week, unanswered questions, they sour into complaint. And then unresolved complaints, they spoil into contempt. And that is the place by which we just start ripping up everything out of scorn. I think this is most applicable in the book of Job. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, Job is kind of a weird book in the Bible. There, it's, it's considered by most one of the oldest texts in the scriptures. And there's no historical setting to Job. Uh, it's not set in Israel among the Hebrews. It's actually set in the land of Uz, which is uh, far away. And the places that it talks about are like Arabia, uh, Persia. And so every character in the book of Job is not, there's no Hebrews in the book of Joseph. They're all Gentiles. And we have this man, Job, he's mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He has devoted his life to Yahweh. He is a follower of God. And when the book of Job opens, basically we have the situation where the, where the scriptures tell us that Job is a righteous man without fault. And yet there's in this court of heaven, God is taking court with his angels. And there is this one angel named Satan, the accuser. And the accuser comes and he makes this plight against Job. He says, Job only follows you because... He has known nothing but the good life. Of course he follows you. If he were to experience pain, he would reject you. God answers this by permitting this angel to then allow Job to go through suffering, to prove that Job 
is righteous and will remain righteous. And so Job, in short order, loses his property, loses his family, loses his health. He is completely ruined. And then Job, in the midst of this, goes among three friends and they start counseling him and they start having this conversation about the world and their assumed beliefs about God. And so essentially what they believe is that God is just. And as a just God, he runs the world justly. And so the good get good and the bad get bad and that seems fair. But yet for Job and for his friends, they have a problem because Job is righteous and yet he has been subsequent into such torment. And so his friends assume, well, God is just, but you must have done something wrong. And Job is like, I did not do anything wrong, and God should be just, but maybe he's not. And so these questions arrive, arrive in Job, these conflicted beliefs between I thought that good people got good things, and yet here I am a good man, and I am receiving bad things. How could this be? Clearly, God is not running this world this way. And so we first see Job's questions. 3.11, he says, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? So see, Job is asking, what was this all for, me living righteously, only to suffer? Why, God, is the world this way in my experience? A little later, those questions become complaint because God is yet not yet answered. And so in Job 7, we see Job say, my eyes will never see good. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Because of these questions that have been less unanswered, Job turns this into a complaint where now he sees primarily the world through a lens of suffering and undeserved brokenness. God, why would you let me suffer? I am still in this suffering. Why is the world this way? And that complaint, you have left me in brokenness, spoils into contempt. And we see this in chapter 9 where he says, speaking of God, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. He now... What Job has come to the point, he says, you know what? You actually aren't a just God. And he holds God in contempt. That God not just allows injustice, but he actually perpetuates it. He mocks when the good fall. And Job begins this ripping down of his beliefs, this deconstruction. Maybe you've been in a similar place and walked through a similar journey. These unanswered questions have eventually led to contempt. And I think that begs the question, is God really not answering us? Is God really ignoring Job? What's happening here? Well, I think the scriptures are very clear that God does not ignore us. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that appears to be right, but the end, it leads to death. And so maybe, when we get on this path of taking our questions, we take our questions to the wrong place. And how we start this journey of entering our incongruent beliefs, these conflicted beliefs, the way that we start this journey will dictate where we end up. How we begin 
the process of engaging our pain and angst with the world will determine where we end up. For Job, he starts by taking his questions to his friends. But his friends can't really help him. The answers that they give him don't work. But I would give us that if we were to take our questions to God, we would start on a different journey. That is what this series is about. Matthew 7, Jesus tells to his followers, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We serve a God that is not hiding. And he does answers. But maybe, maybe we think we're talking to him when we're not. And that brings us to our teaching text today, Psalm 139, because this is a psalm that some scholars have, have, have posited that if it was not written in direct response to the book of Job, it was certainly Job served as an influence. Over one-third of this psalm, uh, the verses in the psalm share a direct correspondence with passages in Job. And the theme of this psalm in and of itself uh, is a midrash, is a commentary on the posture and the place of Job. And it's written by David. This is a psalm of David. And David was a person that when he found an incongruence in the world, when he did not know what to do, when pain and angst seemed to threaten him, he time and again went to the Lord. The process of renovation begins by taking our questions to God. David was a person, a man who took everything to God. There are 25 times directly in scripture where David asked direct and bold questions to God. And so what I wanna talk about through as we go through this passage is what does it look like for us when we encounter the incongruence, when we see the good perish, when we uh, find our humanity challenged, uh, when we find ourselves in spaces that don't affirm the things that we see, how do we handle that and what do we do? Well, we start by taking those questions to God, honestly and directly. And this is important because if we're going to receive an answer from God, like he said, he's not hiding, but if we don't go to him, we can't ever get the answer that we're seeking. Ephesians 3.12, Paul writes, in him through faith, speaking of Jesus, uh, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We must know that we can go to God fully and boldly. To be unafraid to name the things that are killing us. See, it's not just what we do, but how we do that matters, right? And so when we take these questions to God, which is an easy enough kind of like thing, like what, is that, what does that even really mean? We're going to talk about some practicalities of that in a minute. But when we take ourselves to God and these questions to God, it's not just that function, but the form really matters. We have to take our questions and ourselves surrendered. So as we unpack today's text and we go through Psalms, we're going to see five ways in which we must surrender to God if we want to yield ourselves to this process of renovation that he wants to do in us. So what does it look like then to start the journey of renovation? And how then must we bring our questions? Well, the first is this. 
We must come with our questions and surrendered perspective. See, surrendering our perspective allows us to avoid being rightly in the wrong. This is where David starts his psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. When I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Skipping down to verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. David enters before the Lord and he surrenders his perspective. Now we can contrast that with Job. Where in Job, uh, uh, Job calls God to account and he says, God, like, how could you let these good things, these bad things happen to me, a good man? Clearly, you then must be unjust. You're not running the world the way I think it should be run. And in Job 38, 4, God comes to Job and he asks the seminal question. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes throughout chapter 38, rebuking Job and basically saying to Job, Job, this is above your pay grade. Or as my grandmother would say, you're too big for your britches. God reminds Job and his friends that they don't have the view to make such judgments. They don't see the scope of history. They don't see the arc of what he is doing. And so they don't know what is ultimately just and unjust. And yet we know in the end of Job that, that God affirms Job's position. He says, Job has spoken rightly about me. So what does he mean by that? Well, Job was right in that God is just and that ultimately everyone will get their due. But the way he saw through this limited perspective that that meant that the good should never encounter suffering was wrong. See, we can be both wrong and right at the same time. Like we can say patriarchy does wrongly oppress women and keep them from the full use of their gifts, their strengths, and their God-given rights. But it doesn't mean that if we only had women leaders, the world would be devoid of any crime or corruption or mass suffering. Right? So we can call out what's right, but we can also do it in a way that's, that's wrong. We don't have the full picture. So we surrender our perspective to God. Next, David goes on in Psalm 39, and he gives us this next part of surrender, where he surrenders his presence. See, surrendering our presence gives us access to God's freedom and his peace. So as he goes on to say, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Verse 11, David writes, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. We have to give God our presence so that we can enter into his peace. John 6 uh, a crowd is formed around Jesus in the aftermath of him feeding them miraculously, and they want more food. And so Jesus knows that they're there for a show and not for salvation. And so he starts to speak in ways that offend them, and they eventually all run away, and he doesn't chase after them. And then he turns to his, his followers there, and he says, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter, who does not get much right, um, <laughs> he gets this right, and one of the most 
um, misquoted scriptures, in, in, I think, in, in all of the texts. Uh, John 6, 68, often you hear, uh, where would we go? But that is not what Peter says. In fact, Peter says to Jesus, to whom would we go? For you have the words of life. See, if we don't surrender our presence in these conflicted questions, if we take it to the wrong place, if we do not take it, as we read last, year, last week in the Psalm of Asaph, into the sanctuary of God, the place where God dwells, well, then we can give ourselves to places and spaces and people that will lead us astray, well-intended, but misguided. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Philippians 4 and 7 says that if we, if we take our anxieties and give them to God with prayer and supplication through thanksgiving, that the peace of God will surround our hearts and our minds. So what does this look like? Practically, if you've been a part of our church, you've heard about the good way. And in that, we talk about prayer. And I'm not going to go into the full deep dive of prayer as I recommend you just go to the website, thegoodway.live, and you can, uh, you can unpack a whole more than you could ever want to know about prayer. But there's this beautiful section about what it means to pray, which is really about entering into the presence of God, conversing with God. Not just talking, but listening, silence and solitude before the Lord. And so oftentimes the best place we can start when we come into the incongruence of this world is a place of silent communion with the Lord, abiding with him. Pete Gregg in his book, God on Mute, which I would highly recommend to you, includes this poem called Engaging the Silence. It says this, first there is prayer. Where there is prayer, there may be miracles. But where miracles may not be, there are questions. And where there are questions, there may be silence. But silence may be more than absence. Silence may be presence muted. Silence may not be nothing but something. To explore, defy, accuse, engage. And this is prayer. And where there is prayer, they may yet be miracles. We surrender our presence. Next, moving on in the text. David shows us what it looks like that as we come to God with our questions, we surrender our personhood. See, surrendering our personhood acknowledges God as our architect. We've heard the verse, verse 13, where David writes, For you created me, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. Verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are all wonderful. I know that full well. David enters with this posture of giving himself and his personhood into the hands of a living God. We can contrast that with Job directly in verse 10, 8 in Job. Job also knows that God has formed him, and yet, because he has not taken his questions through the presence of God, they have spoiled into contempt. And so he says, your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? And so he's questioning God. You don't actually have my good at heart. But David answers this and said, he does. He has made me not to be discarded, not as clay to be blown away, but he has made me fearfully and wonderfully. 
This allows us to trust in him, to care for us. So, from this place of surrendered perspective, surrendered presence, and then surrendered personhood, we enter into the next part of our surrendering, which is surrendering our problems. See, surrendering our problems make way for true justice. David goes on this little soliloquy where he says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. The wicked have been tormenting David. He goes on to say, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? He counts them as his enemies. See, David does not ignore his problems, but see where it's positioned in the things that he has surrendered. He does not begin with his problems, but he begins with his perspective. He begins with his presence. He begins with his personhood. And through that place, he is able to enter his problems from a different perspective. So he doesn't command God, like Job, why would you do these things? He doesn't hold God in contempt, but he says, God, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. What are you doing? I'm going to yield to you, but I know that this is your problem to solve. When we start on the path of just deconstruction and ripping things up, when we start with our problems out of, a, out of an ill-formed perspective or out of self-preservation, we begin to rip up everything and we are tempted to play God. And I have to make a note here that oftentimes uh, this is where we get in trouble because in churches we can tend to believe um, sometimes, and particularly in the world, uh, that God just wants us and he doesn't really want our problems, that we have to spiritualize our problems away. And so that if we will just like become new people, then like all our problems We'll enter our problems and like everything will be roses and like daffodils, you know, uh, uh, in the storm. But that's not true, right? We see here that David enters his problems and he still has this, this angst against his enemies of God, but, he, but he's giving them to God. And so oftentimes uh, we can be gaslit. And to be gaslit means uh, that we are, we are told to focus on ourselves to dismiss our problems. As a minority, there's been plenty of times where there's been these, these calls of, of, hey, why, you know, the black community, uh, there's, there's gun violence and there's gang violence, so why don't you guys focus on that and stop talking about systemic injustice? And while it is true that there are uh, broken practices within pockets of the black community that we are addressing, that does not dismiss that there are systemic issues that have to also be addressed. God cares about those. But we start with ourselves so that we can come to a place where we can give these problems to God who is the only one who can actually move us towards solving them. We are not examining ourselves to dismiss a problem. We are examining ourselves to truthfully engage a problem. David has done interior work but that doesn't make him any less angry with injustice. But it makes him righteously angry and surrendered to God. He sees the real issue that people are at war with God. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities of darkness. 
And so from this place, surrendered perspective, surrendered presence, surrendered personhood, and these surrendered problems, well, God does not leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us abandoned, but actually he leads us on a path to everlasting. Surrendering our path allows God to lead us into right action. Hear how David closes out this psalm. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. When we take these beliefs honestly, these, these, these conflicted beliefs and this incongruence with the world, the pain that we have, when we take it to God into the inner sanctuary and we do so honestly and directly, surrender to him, well, then he starts to lead us on a path through the valley of the shadow of death. The night before Dr. King was murdered, he spoke to a room of those sanitation workers who were on strike. It was his final speech, and um, it was uh, a prescient speech, actually. It's called, I've, I've Been to the Mountaintop, and he, he reflects on... Um, threats that have been made on his life, and he, uh, he pontificates on uh, what age of the world, if someone were to ask him what time would he have want to have lived in, and he starts to give this answer, uh, and, he, and he goes through kind of like these different times in history uh, where he would love to go to the Parthenon and, and to see Aristotle do his work, that he would love to, to, to travel uh, to Martin Luther nailing his theses to the door, that he would love to go and see Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. But these are none of the times that he would want to live. He would even want to come through the century. But he has this answer, which I, I'm just going to let you listen to, because sometimes you just got to let a preacher preach. Uh, <laughs> Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick, trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. Yeah. 
we know things aren't right and we want to be free. And if we go to Jesus with our questions and our concerns, with our conflicted beliefs, he will meet us surrendered and then lead us into our pain to uncover what needs renovating. And that, that is the journey of grief that we will start next week. Let me pray for us. Father, I do not know what all we are carrying in this place. The things that have led us or leading us to deconstruction and we've been tearing up the floorboards because the world just isn't right and it doesn't seem congruent with what we hoped and what we believed about you, about ourselves. And we need some resolution. We need your salvation. We want to be free from the things that are killing us. And so we come with our questions. And we come surrendered with our perspective, with our presence, with our personhood, with our problems, that you would meet us, we believe, and lead us into the path of righteousness and everlasting. So Lord, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you move and guide us through the process of renovation, we pray. And we say all these things in the name of Jehovah Shema.